Welcome to Having Written, a podcast about the practices and preferences of writers. I'm your host, J.D. Ketchum. Each episode, I use the famous Dorothy Parker quote, I hate writing but love having written, to ask my fellow writers what makes them want to write and how they write. It is January 2nd, 2021, 12.59 p.m., and to quote one of my favorite fictional writers, from here on in, I record without a script to see if any to see if any of it comes of it instead of my old shit. I'm already off script. (laughs) Um, It's been a while and I apologize to my eight loyal listeners or whoever's out there. Um, But the end of 2020 was, was hard and life got in the way. And I apologize to my guest on this episode, Cassandra for letting so many months go between time we talked and time I'm getting this out there. Um, I don't know if this is going to be the last episode of this podcast or not. When I started it, I swore to myself that I wasn't going to let this be just another quarantine podcast. But I, uh, I admit that I underestimated the amount of free time I had in, in, uh, in the pandemic and going back to work full time has shifted my schedule considerably and as with most things and most people I'm sure I have the resolutions for this new year to do more create more have more balance but um, I think you know being reasonable and having realistic expectations is also a key thing so I'm not going to say this is it I'm not going to close down this podcast or this feed but I'm not going to make any promises as to when I can get content out. I know content regularity are keys to successful podcasts, but I'm just doing the best I can. And my true hope is that in 2021, I will have as much content on my own as a writer that I can potentially talk to you all about whether about how I love writing instead of just having written. So... On with the show, Um, this is episode 17, and it is my interview with uh, poet and novelist and freelance medical writer sometimes, uh, Cassandra Montag. Uh, She grew up in rural Nebraska. She now lives in Omaha. Uh, She is the uh, author of the debut novel, After the Flood. She is an amazing writer and very well thought out and probably one of the most um, well-versed or uh, I don't know, just she just has a real handle on writing that I think was unique to uh, all of the other people that I interviewed up to in the past year. So um, this is the interview itself, uncut, unsplit, unedited, and... I hope you all enjoy it. So, uh, episode 17, Cassandra Montag. Uh, we're just going to go right into it. No, uh, no sponsors for this one. Okay. Just right to the, right to the interview. Thank you all for sticking with me and enjoy the show. Thanks for being on. Uh, so why don't we just start off with, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you write? Okay. My name is Cassandra Montag. I'm the author of the debut novel, After the Flood. Um, After the Flood is a post-apocalyptic novel um, that takes place just about like 100 years in the future. So I write prose, but I also write poetry and essays. Awesome. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely the poetry and essays that are a bit different for the podcast. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of our previous episodes, primarily because of just my predilections as a writer. I've been doing a lot of genre fiction writers, uh, a lot of fantasy, urban fantasy, and comic book writers. And uh, oh, cool. I, I've had a f- um, 
I've had a few writers that have been in more in that kind of classic literary poetry vein, but After the Flood definitely fits in, I think straddles the line in my opinion from, you know, from my experience with it. It definitely has a literary feel to me, but it's also very genre at the same time. And I think you, you straddle those worlds with expert <laughs> navigation to go with the nautical theme. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's great to hear because I I also love genre fiction as well, and I really wanted it to have that feel like of adventure and you know like high stakes and characters who are engaged in these like dangerous situations and to play also with sort of um, genre tropes. Mm -hmm. But my background is a little bit literary as well, so I was hoping it could at times have a little bit of maybe lyrical language or a little bit of that feel also. So I'm glad to hear that it, you felt like it did kind of straddle both because I, I love both. So that's great. Yeah. On that note of genre fiction, I know we just talked before recording that we have uh, an alma mater in common with Creighton University. Um, I got my bachelor's in creative writing there. Uh, I graduated in 2011. Okay. And uh, I don't know when you, when, when was your time at Creighton? Yeah, so my time was 2009 to 2011 for oh. my master's degree. Okay. So I did the, the MA in English literature with an emphasis in creative writing. Hmm. Yeah. We were there at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it makes me wonder if it was just kind of um, the division between the undergrad and grad world, because I'm surprised that we didn't like run into each other, because I, I did go to a lot of readings and events and stuff. But I think for yeah. me, it was, it was probably also the fact that I was in the university college program. Okay. Uh, so I was taking, I, I took almost exclusively night courses. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was doing all sense. of the 545 to 915 classes uh, the four hour kind of marathon classes for all of us uh, adult students because it was yeah. like my third time in college so <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good school though I mean I oh, had I had a really good time there yeah, yeah my my senior advisor was Brent Spencer um, yeah and that, for me too oh awesome yeah uh, mm -hmm. I went with him primarily because I wanted to write comics and they didn't have a comics program so he I went with the screenwriting professor because script writing was the closest equivalent. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Speaking of screenwriting, is that something since you're interested in um, comics and I assume maybe graphic novels and mm -hmm. have you ever thought about dabbling in screenwriting? No, <laughs> not <Yeah>. really. <laughs> uh, primarily because, and I, I talked about this a little bit with Christine Burright, uh, the, the, kind of the weird fact about screenwriting is just, unless you just want to do small, like independent films and short film, you've got to move to the coasts. Yeah. And I just, I'm 42 years old. I'm not about that life anymore. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and also I just, my first love is comics always will be. Um, okay. I mean, yeah. I'm currently, you know, slogging out a novel that I started because I couldn't find an artist, but uh but yeah, I, I will get back to comics eventually. Uh, and the reason why I brought up Creighton and specifically in relationship to genre fiction is I was curious, did you find when, or did you even pursue it at all? But I found when I was there that there was a bit of resistance toward genre fiction in education, but it was, it was a wall that was starting to crumble quickly. In my experience, did you have a similar experience? I did. Yeah. And the way you described it as there's a wall that was starting to crumble mm -hmm. is a really good way of putting it. Cause it was the same kind of way with me is that, you know, there it, in, and it would honestly, for me, it varied um, by professor. Some professors were a lot more open to it and excited about the possibility of students exploring genre fiction and, and others um, that wasn't really what they were interested in. And so um, for me, it was a hit and miss, you know, in the classes. And mm -hmm. I do feel like there's a lot, and from what I've heard from other people, that there's more acceptance in writing programs now toward genre fiction in the classroom and in writing workshops. But yeah, I think maybe both when you and I were there, it was just starting to become acceptable. Yeah, I remember definitely playing a lot of semantic games and leaning very heavily on the magical realism <laughs> yes, concept. Yes. Right, so that was acceptable, but yeah. other things less. It's so. like you're writing about wizards. It's magical realism. There was yeah. there's a car. <laughs> Enter, yeah. Fast forward, you know, almost ten years, and I'm you know interviewing you know renowned 
urban fantasy authors. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and I mean, I think for me, it was like, for me, I knew I was in the right place as far as, you know, Creighton is a program that I could kind of start to break, you know, get into applying what they were teaching me to comics when, um, oh, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the professor, but she taught a course on pop lit. And I remember uh, one of the books that she had us read was Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Okay. And, yeah. you know, and for the, well, listeners of my podcast know I've talked about it, but uh, it, you know, it's a graphic novel uh, and about, uh, and it's an autobiographical about Marjane's time in Iran during the Cultural Revolution, but still it was a comic book and it was a graphic novel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I got to do a big presentation on, you know, the difference between comic books and graphic novels and the whole, like the whole idea of the medium, you know, and do my whole shtick about, you know, comic book is not a genre, it's a medium. You can tell any mm -hmm. story in sequential art, you know, mm -hmm. and all of that. So yeah, that was, and the fact that they were just, you know, open to that, I really appreciated, so. Yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. And I like your point about how it's its own medium mm -hmm. and any story can be told with it. And I think that's hopefully something that's becoming a little bit, you know, more, I guess, well-known. I know that for kids, at least, so I have two sons mm -hmm. and I know for kids, um, graphic novels and comics are becoming, you know, more acceptable forms of reading. You know, like mm -hmm. this is still a book. It's a different kind of book, but this is still a legitimate work of art, a legitimate um, story in its own right. Yeah. I mean, not to derail things too much, but, uh, you know, my, my, I, the reason why I'm so passionate about comic books and since I, you're a parent with kids that are reading comics is, uh, you know, my, my origin story as a comic reader is when I was in fifth grade, I got set back in reading to remedial reading. And the summer between fifth and sixth grade, my best friend's older brother sold all of his comic books at a garage sale. And I bought all of them. And yeah. I read all of them that summer. Yeah. And by the time I was, by the time I was entering sixth grade, we did standardized testing and I was reading at college level. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible story. Yeah. And it was just, it wasn't that I couldn't read. It's just, I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and then also just the, you know, sheer mix of pictures and words being able to associate and get those associations and things, you know, and I, you know, I've learned all sorts of other things, you know, I've picked up little bits of French and German and things like that, just as stupidly from like X-Men comics, because there's characters that speak both and there's editor's notes for their, for the translations, you know, and yeah. so you get, you get context and you get language and it's so, yeah. So yeah, that's the, you know, and so I think, yeah, if we can get people looking at it as that aspect of, you know, it's not only just a great medium, but it's also a medium that, it, that, that fires the brain in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, no, I think, yeah, so. That's a good point. And it, I mean, what you were saying before too, that previously you didn't want to read, but like mm -hmm. then you got excited about, you know, these books. And that's so important for kids is just that they have something that they're getting excited about. And like you said, it's going to engage their brain yeah. in, in new ways. And that's so important. Well, I can tell I am a little out of practice at this, so I apologize. I'm already way off the rails. So um, that's okay. I, so you, as you know from the uh, from the messages I sent you, the, the the podcast has a central theme based around the famous Dorothy Parker quote. That is, yeah, I love write or I hate writing, but I love having written. So yeah. I'm going to ask you, like I ask everyone else, which are you? Do you like writing or do you like having written? Is it possible to say that it'll maybe, I'll have a different answer on a different day? Is yes. that unacceptable? Okay. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, because I, I would say, you know, I do love, I do love writing. I love the process of writing and I don't think I would have, you know, gotten as far as I have if I didn't love it on some level. Mm -hmm. With that being said, I have bad days like everyone else and I have <laughs> bad days of writing where it's, it's almost torture. It's, it feels like it's so mm -hmm. difficult and it feels like I can't, you know, 
maybe a certain project I have is stuck and I don't see like a way to push it forward. And um, those days can be very frustrating um, because it can feel like you're spinning your wheels. And on those days, I maybe will at least feel grateful that I've, that I have written, you know, so maybe <laughs> yeah. is in that case, you know, that part of the quote, but generally speaking, I would say I probably fall on the side of loving to write and, and really getting um, enjoyment out of it. I think there are some aspects of the writing life that I find more difficult to handle than others, but the process of creation does remain um, challenging, but, but fun and pleasurable I, with the caveat <laughs> of I do have terrible days like anyone else. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so how did you decide to pursue this path as, as a writer? What's your writer origin story? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a story that probably kind of twists and turns a bit, like a lot of people. I, you know, I was one of those kids who loved to create and write from a young age. I, I wrote little, um, you know, we were speaking about like uh, comics and graphic novels. I loved to write, I guess, my own graphic novels because I would illustrate them too. You know, mm -hmm. so I'd write and illustrate these little books when I was young. And that was when I was in elementary school. And then in junior high and high school, I didn't really do a ton of creative writing. I was doing a lot more painting and visual arts. Hmm. Um, but then late in high school, like my senior year, I started to get into poetry. And um, poetry became sort of this private world that I could retreat into that felt like a sanctuary, a really like safe place where I could express things that were on my mind um, that I didn't really feel like I could express in other ways to other people. So it felt like this safe place that I could go. And I started to write poetry really seriously throughout college. And I had a poetry mentor that I worked with and he was really instrumental to encouraging me in my writing. So I really focused on poetry through undergrad and then graduate school. Um, I did my master's degree after that. But then after my master's degree, I, I sort of felt like I had taken poetry as far as I could go in a certain sense. And I really wanted to sort of um, try to stretch a little bit and I wanted to move into fiction writing. And so um, I started writing short stories a little bit more often and I, I moved into novel writing at that point. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, yeah kind of a, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's so twisty of a story. I think that's, there's definitely a good progression there. Uh, and, right. I, and I've looked, you know, I've, I've been reading uh, After the Flood, your novel and I've been loving it. Um, oh, thank then, you. Uh, I did win it. I did, you know, kind of, I've been poking around. I've been stalking you a little bit, looking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking at some of your other writing. And what I've been, what I've been able to see, I mean, I, I read the excerpt of your short story, Water Wolf, which is oh, the, yeah. the, the mystery. And yeah. uh, I've read at least one of your poems all the way through uh, that I could find, The Psychoanalysis of Fire. And oh, yeah. what I was really taken with with that is the, the difference in all of your work. You have, I would say, if there's any consistency in your work, it's just competency. <laughs> I mean, it's oh, just, you. you know, it's it's all good, but it's all very different. I, I was really shocked at how there wasn't. Uh, I'm trying to find a way to say this that is as complimentary as I mean it to be, but I, I would say you're you're very adaptable and mercurial as a writer, uh, yeah. which is amazing because, yeah, I I sound like me no matter what I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I I agree with that assessment because. Um, you know, sometimes I've actually longed to be able to put my work a little bit more in a box and to say like it does this, or at least mm -hmm. it has these commonalities. Um, but like you say, a lot of my work is quite different. Um, you know, the poetry is different than the essays and the short stories even are different than the novel. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there there is a bit of a range there. Um, and I think I maybe just attribute that to that I love to read a lot of different things. And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of different influences will you know come to bear on a certain piece and mm. so maybe that's partly where the um yeah like you said that it feels like it's quite distinct from one another the the different pieces could maybe even feel like they're written by different authors yeah like um i mean i think the biggest one that was the biggest shift for me was the differences between obviously after the flood is first person and it's all right. in Myra's head and Myra's point of view. And so the, there was this jarring difference between this very interior, very personal 
uh, very emotional, fiery uh, narrative from Myra's point of view to the water wolf, which almost read like a case file. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that was fascinating. I was like, wow, those gears shifting. And then uh, I absolutely love psychoanalysis of fire. I'm, I'm a uh, closet poetry fan. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. I, I, I wrote poetry for quite a while before I went into writing school. I did poetry and I did, embarrassingly, it was the late 90s. So I did a lot of um, performance poetry. Um, yeah, yeah. Like spoken word, def, you know, poetry slams and things like that. Because um, I was also a musician at the time too. So I just liked being on stage. <laughs> but uh, the, um, I've made a lot of, I've made this comment quite a few times on the podcast. And uh, there's, to me, there's a lot of similarities in poetry to comic book writing. Mm -hmm. And the aspect of, especially if you're doing poetry that any type of poetry that has a form like a rondelle or anything like that, uh, because you have these preconceived or these pre-established constraints that you have to fit your story into. You right. have to work with this economy of language. And I believe those strengths or those constraints do wondrous things to shaping narrative and yeah. giving us those things, those hoops you have to jump through. And so like the thing I, the thing that jumped out to jumped out at me immediately with psychoanalysis of fire was you had this, um, this motif of threes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the thing that I loved about this is, and I don't know if you know much about uh, Celtic mythology or Celtic, you know, spirituality, but the, the thing that I came away from this particular poem was it reminded me of the uh, triple goddess, the maiden mother and crone. Uh, because it was this like when I was a child, when my lover left me, and then finally it was this this three stage evolution of a person, right. and uh, it just had those feelings to it, and I, that was the thing that came away from me, and I was just so I just wanted to say that that came I got that out of your work, and I liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I think that's actually that's such a brilliant insight. I love how you bring the Celtic mythology into it. Um, because I, I think that, yeah, the power of three, you know, in yeah. creative work, is, it's such a powerful number. And I think, because um, I have a lot of poems that I've structured in that three-part structure, mm -hmm. you know, that you mentioned where it's almost like the first, the first stanza or the first section is, you know, really introducing things. And the second one is like complicating them and setting them up. And then the third, you know, you, I mean, it's kind of like that typical, almost like a three-act structure. Um, yeah, three-act structure, rule of threes yeah. in comedy. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's just, it's a very, um, you know, I think for me, um, it's a very helpful constraint, like you were saying earlier, constraints can help sort of enrich the work because it makes it really tight. It makes you know that like, I have to get it all this in, in this certain section. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just helps that um, to come alive. So, so yeah, I really do like thinking about structure in poetry and um, I think that, that that even helped me when I moved into fiction. You know, mm. you don't have quite as many constraints, right. but I internalized some of, you know, I internalized this sense of structure and needing to make things fit together in a right. certain way. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, so I think that's a good segue into your fiction writing. Um, the, um, the thing I wanted to talk to you about with After the Flood was uh, your world building. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously you're working in a little bit more of a post-apocalyptic fashion, so you're not creating anything from whole cloth specifically. You're working with preconceived notions of the earth and the structure and, you know, kind of, you know, you can have colloquialisms that people understand and things like that. So that was good. You still had that kind of, uh, you know, Western, you know, Western European American shorthand that you could work with, but uh, just... Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea of the, the, the six year, the 50 year, the hundred year floods and mm -hmm. just the landscape that our characters were in at the, at the point of your, at the, at the point of your novel. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, it took me a while over several drafts to really develop exactly what that world was going to be like. Um, so for, for listeners who may not have read yet, um, the book takes place in the future after a global flood. And like you said, there are two major floods that occur. First, there's this like hundred year flood, and then there's a shorter um, 
a six year flood. I think it's six years. And the reason I did that was that the, I, I needed the hundred year flood first for the seas to be rising slowly um, from sort of temperature warming and things like that, because I needed um, essentially the soil and the, the sort of climate on mountaintops to, to slowly change. Mm. So for the tree line to move up slowly, because I knew that it was going to, those areas were going to need to be inhabitable oh, for wow. people in the future of this book. So it was very right. much like planning ahead. So like the, the <laughs> okay. world was really built it, it, almost like as a response to the plot, if that makes mm. sense. So like yeah. I had the story, um, or at least the germ of the story worked out where I knew that these characters were going to be surviving in a flooded world where only mountaintops are above water. Mm -hmm. So then I needed to work backwards and be like, okay, so what was happening in the world so that the mountaintops could become habitable? You know, sure. how would the sort of like weather patterns change and <laughs> when would the soil change, things like that. So I needed that long period, but I also knew that I wanted there to be like a catastrophic event in a shorter period of time. So that's when I did the second six year flood, because that's when at like the massive migration start occurring right. and um, entire countries are being swamped and things like that. Cause I did want it to have a little bit of that feeling of sort of horror and desperation of, mm -hmm. you know, this is not slow moving. We're going to have to move fast and we're going to have to get to safety fast. Yeah. And that's essentially, you know, where the book opens is the main character is um, building a boat with her grandfather so that they can flee to the Rocky mountains. So, so yeah, as far as like where I, you know, how I did the world building, I would say that I had the story first and the story of course included the fact that there was going to be a global flood but the exact particulars of how I was going to build that world was in part kind of dependent on I want this to be dangerous this dangerous world but also plausible that they could survive so it couldn't be so you know so yeah if that if that answers the question that was um, kind of my beginning stepping stones and then from there I just had to fine-tune everything with research yeah, I was going to ask about the research next because it seems like it was pretty well researched and uh, I really liked the... Now, one thing I was going to ask though is, and I don't know if I missed it or so I apologize if I did, but I one of the things that stuck out to me was an almost timeless quality of the story because of the lack of technology. Yeah, yeah. And I now forgive me and correct me if I just, if it was in the story and I missed it, but I, I didn't think there was a lot of discussion about how the technology failed or at what point did they revert and step back to kind of that uh, pre-technological uh, society. Yeah. So no, you're right. I mean, there's not, um, there's not technology in the story and um, it's only addressed the, at the beginning. I want to say it's maybe like 40 pages in, I could be wrong, but I think there's, um, there's a bit of backstory when she's talking about the time during the six year floods, when for a while they were watching the news oh, and then right. the news yes. stations were, you know, sort yeah. of, and then they lost the internet and they locked, they lost electricity around the same time. Right. Then That's they could right. no longer watch the news. And then they got news from sort of people who are migrating and traveling through. So it became almost that kind of old fashioned way of orally just giving the news because right. of travelers who are passing through, which I loved that feel because it made me think of the Oregon Trail, you know, growing <laughs> up in Nebraska and just this mm -hmm. sense of like people going through and telling the people who they came across, like, watch out for that river because it's flooded or watch out for that region because it's dangerous, you know, so just sharing the news um, because you're traveling through. So yeah, it, I, it, it wasn't something that I dwelled on for a long time, um, which which is interesting, I think, because, you know, of course, right now during the pandemic, we're using technology for everything. Right. And in, in the book, I sort of, you know, destroy technology and then move on. Like it's not <laughs> yeah. something that's like dwelt on at all. Right. And I think part, part of the reason I did that is because I, I like how you said it had this timeless quality to it mm -hmm. almost. And right. I did want to capture that. I wanted to capture this sense of like when technology fails, um, you know, how in, in certain ways society would regress, you know, to these earlier time periods where they, mm -hmm. they no longer had these tools at their disposal. So I wanted it to have that timeless feel that wasn't anchoring it because of one particular technological device. So um, I think that's part of the reason that I didn't discuss it too much in depth. And then the, the other reason is that for, um, for the character Myra, since it's in her point of view, um, 
society was already collapsing by the time you know she had like could form memories by the time she was old enough right it was already like slowly starting to deteriorate mm -hmm. so I didn't really feel like her childhood would be exactly the same as mine sure. in that I, I didn't feel like it would have the exact dependence on technology that mine has had right. um, because for her things were already crumbling it seems to be a fairly popular or not popular but it's it's a common thing in in post-apocalyptic literature uh, or stories to kind of take that technological crutch out of the off the table early. Yeah. I mean, I think to probably what is the most popular example of post-apocalyptic fiction in today, at least in popular culture, The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. you, you, yeah. you lost TV, you lost radio, you lost phones, you had some electricity if someone had a generator and that's about it. But a lot right. of that is to kind of take away those cr those crutches that we all exist on. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it, it enhances the danger, mm -hmm. you know, when you can't just like call someone else. And it also makes people feel more desperate when they don't actually know exactly what's happening in the next town, you right. know? So you don't know, like if something's coming for you, you're not <laughs> like, you may hear rumors, but like the rumors almost make it more scary because you can't prove them true or false. So right. I, I love, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. How lost are we when you take away Google? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of scary to think about actually. <laughs> Uh, and, and also, I want to comment that uh, I find it refreshing that you're probably the first person I've met in probably close to three years that has referenced Oregon Trail and not been talking about the game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, speaking of, okay, so we've talked about some other literature and stuff like that and video games from our youth. Uh, who would you say are your main influences as a writer? Who, who do you read or who do you look up to? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have so many and I feel like the, you know, one of a couple of the first people that come to mind um, would be Margaret Atwood. I love, mm -hmm. I love her work. Um, I've been reading a bit of Neil Gaiman lately and I, I yes. love like his voice. Yeah. He is, yeah. he is just so much fun. Um, my, my son actually is in love with one of his picture books and I love how oh. he writes for so many different ages. Like he's yep. written picture books, he's written like middle grade, adult, you know, and I love that. I admire that sort of flexibility. The spectrum. Yeah. I came to um, I came to know Neil first as a comic book writer yeah. through his Sandman series. And yeah. then I came around to his novel writing and American Gods is my favorite novel ever written. Hands oh, down. great. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. And I have to, I have to get to that one. I'm <laughs> finishing up Neverwhere right now. Oh. So yeah. Neverwhere yeah, is amazing. So that one's interesting. Cause that didn't, that, that wasn't originally a novel. I didn't know that. Yeah. It started out as a teleplay. Okay, he, interesting. He, he first wrote the story as a teleplay for BBC, and then the novel that we all read now was an adaptation that he decided to do for his publisher. Oh. So, yeah, actually, somewhere around here, we have the, I have the DVD set of the original BBC production, and I mean, it's, it's pre-Doctor Who, re, re, you know, uh, uh, revamp BBC, so I mean, the special effects are pretty cheesy and bad, but the acting's all great and the stories are there and the characters are amazing so it's definitely yeah. something if you're enjoying Neverwhere it's definitely seek out that teleplay it's a lot of fun I will and that's it's really fun to hear too how he you know continued with the story and, and made some adaptations you know with mm -hmm. the you know moving into a novel that's I just I love hearing those kind of stories because I think it shows um how much writers can do you know with their own work and like yeah. moving it into different forms or whatever so that's a that's a really cool history of that book um as far as some other influences Cormac McCarthy's work um influenced me a lot particularly mm -hmm. when I was first you know starting um to write a little bit more prose and um I do like a lot of sort of I guess you'd call them like literary thrillers. Um, mm. So like Tana French, um, she's an, an Irish novelist. So I, I read a lot of those. And, um, you know, when I look back and I think about early influences, like when I was a kid, I really loved action adventure sort of stories. So I loved um, books that especially combined um, the sense of history with a sense of like wildness. So I'm thinking of The Witch of Blackbird Pond by Elizabeth George Spear. And that's a book that takes place um, in the colonial time period. And it's essentially about a young girl um, who meets someone who's accused of being a witch. And there's like a witch trial and there's an adventure, you know, of course, where she has to try to save her. So I always loved those kind of, those kind of stories. 
stories. Um, and I feel like those really gave me this love for um, adventure in fiction. That's excellent. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, the Witch of Blackbird Pond. Yeah, yeah. I'll look into that. That that one. It's one of the things I love about doing this show is just not only just getting to talk to great creative people, but I get all these new influences. And then, you know, my true motive is just to steal all your tricks. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I I love that you're a Neil Gaiman fan or coming around and, uh, but also just, I mean, just hearing the combination of literary influences and then, you know, the, the younger YA, you know, YA, I think it's interesting. Everyone talks about YA fiction, like it's a new thing. Right. And it's not by any means. It's just, you know, it's just, I think it's, I think honestly, I would say YA urban fantasy, all of these subgenres of stuff, I would say they're, I would argue they're almost more of a function of Amazon than anything else because mm-hmm. everything had to be so closely categorized. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Before it just would have been youth fiction, fiction, fantasy, the end. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, know? yeah. And uh, yeah, it's definitely just a marketing term yeah. um, for sure. You know, it's for marketing um, because so many of those stories that, you know, younger people can read, they can also be enjoyed by adults. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Cause I mean, I still love, um, one of the things I'm getting so excited about with my sons getting older is that they're able to, you know, they're getting close to reading like middle, middle schools type of books. And mm-hmm. so I'm able like to read those aloud to them and enjoy them myself because right. there's still so much to love about, mm-hmm. you know, books for any age. Yeah, I mean, despite the current consternation with the author who will not be named, you know, Harry Potter's still a big, you know, influence, I think, to a lot of readers and writers. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. He says he's, as he's wearing a Fantastic Beast t-shirt, so <laughs> my bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's great. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I don't want to go on about Neil Gaiman anymore because I could do that forever and <laughs> That's a flaw in my character. Uh, Just to let you know, I have uh, a framed illustration of his eight of his eight rules for writing on my wall. Oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's just yeah. I mean, he's someone that I really admire. Um, Anyone who's able to have this long career with multiple Mm -hmm. books. I mean, it takes so much work and and perseverance to weather the ups and downs. So yeah, I have a lot of admiration for him. Um, so I would say, like, so, yeah, I'm going to segue into talking more about you as a writer than other writers, um, and I want to get into the nuts and bolts of your writing style, uh, or writing yeah. practices, uh, so would you can, when we talk, when writers talk, we talk a lot about either being, you know, like a seat of the pants writer, or discovery writer, as we call them, or pantsers, some people will say, or plotters and outliners, so are you more of a discovery right. writer or more of a plotter? I start, so when I'm starting a project, definitely discovery, where Mm -hmm. I just spend a lot of time um, going on walks with a notebook, actually, and just like jotting down a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll sometimes spend time, um, I draw a lot of inspiration from imagery, so sometimes from actual artwork of other um, artists or interesting kind of like photography, um, photos of different places or people who will get my imagination going. So I'll spend a lot of time in that discovery phase, and um, during that discovery phase, I may do a little bit of research as well to start like seeing if there's any context for anything that I'm finding, you know, that will like flesh things out and start to feel like a story or feel like a character. Um, as I get further into a project, you know, I already have sort of the premise of the story. I have maybe a couple of the main characters. Then I do move a little bit more into a loose plan. It's definitely not um, a detailed outline because I still want to leave a lot of room for discovery, but I do start to kind of make a couple of decisions and some of those decisions may be just point of view decisions, structure decisions, um, because I can't really start writing, you know, if I don't know the narrator yet or something like that, or if I don't really have a sense of, well, when exactly is the book starting, you know? So, I mean, I'll maybe by that point have already jotted down some scenes where I'm experimenting with voice and point of view and structure, but, um, before I really start like a very serious draft, I'll have a very, a very loose um, 
whether you want to call it like an outline or a kind of summary, it normally takes, takes the form of um, maybe like a one page summary of the mm. story with a, a few of my key decisions of like how I'm going to approach it, you know, so is this story going to take place over a year or over two weeks, you know, so I also have to kind of make those decisions as well, but I definitely start as a discovery writer where I'm really just trying to soak up a lot of um, a lot of ideas to make it as rich as possible. I, that, I really like that because it seems to me like you have you have a plan and you have a a, a, a structure, but it's very organic. And I love yeah. how organic it is that you just kind of let yourself guide, but you've got a guide for your guide. You know, there's a Sherpa for your guide. I like I love yeah, just yeah. that whole idea because I, I think a lot of times. And I know this has been a pitfall for me, but, um, you know, we will hear about a new, a new, you know, system or a new plan or a new idea for note writing or a new structure or someone will give you like a, like at one point I, my editor gave me a spreadsheet for story beats and I was like, oh, I'll fill this out and it'll just take care of everything. And it's like, you can get so wrapped up in the structures and techniques that you lose the whole like momentum of just putting creative ideas out and storytelling. And yeah. so I love that idea of just letting, figuring out where your story goes, make a few decisions, have an idea right. where you want to go and then just dive in. So it is yeah. that beautiful hybrid of a discovery writing and outlining, which I think is yeah. really nice. And I'm, I'm definitely going to try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have, you have a good point, definitely about the, you know, like the spreadsheet of like filling out the different beats, because yeah. I have tried that before with different projects. And like you mm -hmm. say, it can actually just be a bit forced. And yeah. what, at least for myself, I found that there's not as much sort of spark or energy when yeah. I do that. And it comes out on the pages a bit flat than when I write it out, you know? Right. And so I do kind of, like you say, I do have to have that discovery process where I'm letting it be a little bit more organic. Um, you do eventually have to make some decisions, you know, mm -hmm. about like certain beats or whatever, but I try to let those, those decisions come a little bit later after I already have material that is growing you know and developing on its own yeah yeah i found yeah. if i do the if i do like the beat sheet or the spreadsheet or the the whole story concept and i have it laid out and then i start writing and then like you know three pages into my writing i've made a decision that has just completely shifted the timeline away from where i was had it on the spreadsheet and i was like well crap i just <laughs> yeah yes yeah now right you know, it's just so yeah leaving yourself open but mm -hmm. with that kind of loose guide that you know i want to get here how i get there doesn't matter you know? right yeah you, know, you can have them go over there as long as they get there you know let's yeah. make the journey interesting which i really like that idea yeah um do you have a writing routine well first of all let me ask you this are you a full-time writer or is this a side hustle for you Right. So for, for most of my life, I've fit my writing in, in between jobs and caring for my kids. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, been um, like a side hustle for um, over a decade now. Right now, I am writing full time. And so, um, well, yeah. And I mean, I guess with the one caveat that of course, during a pandemic, um, childcare is hard to come by. So, sure. I mean, I, I am still like caring for my kids at home oh, yeah. a lot of the time, but um, I am a full-time writer. I'm not doing another job right now. And so um, that's, you know, that's been nice and it's been good, particularly because one of the things I've realized after publishing After the Flood is that um, after you have a book published, there's a lot of other things that you do as an author besides just writing. Mm. And so um, it can help if you have that little bit extra time to attend to all those other things. Um, right. Because Promotion. like, right, right. And it's, you know, it's part of part of the job. And it's a lot of fun in a lot of ways. But I am, I'm, it can be stressful for people who also have too much on their plate, you mm. know, and that's another kind of reality. So it's, um, you know, it can be hard for you know, I mean, it was definitely hard for me and I know it's hard for other writers like to do that transition mm -hmm. um, to full-time writing, but um, I'm grateful to be here now. And it's, but I, I would say also, you know, all of that, all those years that I spent writing while working, you know, other jobs and taking care of kids, it did train me to try to use time wisely and mm -hmm. to try to work as hard as I could when I did have time. And 
while I was frustrated a lot during those years with not having enough time, um, I'm actually really grateful for them now and how much I feel like I, if I had just always had the opportunity to write full time, um, I don't think I would be where I am today. So that's yeah. encouraging because, yeah. you know, as I said, I've recently lost a lot of time and I feel like I wasted a lot of the time I had during quarantine and pandemic, you know, doing other things and not, you know, knuckling down on my writing per se, but, you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, hindsight's 2020 and there's all sorts of ways to look at that, but um, I think it does, you're right, it does make you look at your time more, uh, you know, more effectively, you know, you have right. to really work on it, so, you know, and I think it comes back to that thing we were talking about earlier with the constraints and having those constraints and yeah. how those constraints affect your writing and affect your storytelling, you know, in that aspect, I really like how those, you know, even time constraints can go, you know, I know for me, if I have all the time in the world to write a book, I'll take all the time in the world to write a book. <laughs> yeah, no, I love, I love that you say that because I'm that way too. And I've heard, you know, I've heard even people, you know, psychologists who study time and like the way that we deal with procrastination or time <laughs> and they're right. Like it's the same thing as what you say that a for a lot of people, you know, if you give yourself a certain amount of time to do a task, it will expand to fill that amount of time. So if yeah. you give yourself, you know, a month to do something um, that you could actually do in a week, it'll still take you a month because mm -hmm. you gave yourself a month. And um, so that's that, yeah, those constraints, I think really can help you um, get that extra bit of energy to focus on what matters, um, right. maybe in your own life, but then also in the, in the life of the story. Mm -hmm. And um, it can be very focusing. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say too, you know, you were mentioning the, you know, the pandemic and like it being a little bit difficult to focus and like knuckle mm -hmm. down with writing. And I, that I was the same way with me, you know, so mm -hmm. I would not, I mean, to any writers out there listening who've, you know, ever gone through something stressful, whether it's the right. pandemic or something else, that's a really normal human response to stress, mm -hmm. you know, to not be able to focus on something. So um, I'm with you there. I <laughs> also had a lot of trouble. So yeah. Right. Uh, so with that being said, congratulations on being a full-time writer. Uh, what is yeah. your, do you have a daily writing routine? Um, yeah, so I, in the morning, I um, take my kids to school, and then I go down to my office. I have an office in the basement of my house, and um, I, I normally try to save the morning for creative time. That doesn't always work, depending on how many emails I have, but I, <laughs> I try to save it. You know, I try to be disciplined and save it for creative time, and um, so normally I'm trying to work on new work in the morning, and um, then after lunch will sometimes be a time of sort of um, promotion answering emails, dealing with any kinds of decisions that I need to make around um, sort of the publishing aspect of my work. Mm -hmm. And um, then I'll try to get another hour or two in the late afternoon and for maybe revisions or like checking in on, you know, wherever I left off with my creative work. And then normally it's time to get the kids and um, do the whole supper routine. And once the kids are home in the evening, um, it's normally taken up with like parenting and making sure my oldest is, you know, able to get his homework done and things like that. So that's, that's actually really most of my day. I try to um, fit in some reading time in the evening. Um, my youngest son and I have what we call book party, which is where we snuggle together in my bed and we read books side by side. Aww. So yeah, so that's then when I get my reading time in. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, wow. I will say that uh, that is the one thing that I did not uh, take into account in starting this podcast is the sheer amount of reading I would have to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to have at least the majority of, if not all of one solid work by each of the authors has been difficult, especially as I get into the more prolific authors such as yourself and uh, my my last interview with J.C. McKenzie, you know, she, she's got 20 books out, I think, and <laughs> just trying to just chip away at their, at the bibliographies and such, just so that I know what, kind of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, that's true. The, that is the part of, you know, being a writer and the writer lifestyle that, um, I mean, it's challenging for me too, because there's so many books that I want to read mm -hmm. and like I have stacks and stacks of books by my bed and, um, you know, I love to read of course, but it's also just, it's very time consuming to try mm -hmm. to get through everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
yeah and yeah and balancing yeah and i have not to talk about me too much but i also have the other thing where i review comic books too so oh, yeah. <laughs> I read those every week and right then, but yeah but i have enjoyed like especially like your book and 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 some other just reading books that i normally wouldn't uh you right. know, stepping out of my usual bubble of you know wizards and superheroes and stuff and just kind of settling into things um yeah, it's just been really expanding to me and helping with my, you know, with, with just my writing and my whole, you know, idea of fiction and things like that. It's been really nice. Um, oh, good. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the publishing side, uh, because mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, handing the more administrative aspects of writing and the business side of things. Uh, and I noticed that uh, After the Flood is published through Harper Lux. Harper, yep, Harper Collins, yep. Harper Collins. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and I think, um, I think you're one of the, you're, you're definitely one of the few authors that I've interviewed that has been with one of the big companies outside of, I think, Eliane. Uh, she's had a few big works. You know, obviously she's, you know, a New York Times bestselling author. So uh, she definitely, and she talked at length about the big six in New York and things like that. So what, what's been your experience working with Harper? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I guess it would maybe be my first thing that I would say, mm -hmm. you know, when, when my book sold back, um, I'm trying to think three years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of a exciting, but overwhelming experience. Um, my book went to auction and, um, you know, we went ahead and chose to go with HarperCollins. And um, I mean, the experience has been positive overall in that, um, you know, the big five has a lot of marketing support and publicity support and things like that. Mm -hmm. I will say that so much still falls on the author to do. You know, things have changed in publishing in the last decade um, so much. And so there's, there is still quite a bit of um, sort of demand that the author is, you know, doing some of the things that I think in the past, maybe the publishing houses would have done. Um, you know, and what would be fascinating for me is if I had a, another book published, maybe with a small press or with a different press, so I could mm -hmm. compare the two experiences. Right. It's tough for me. This is my only, you know, I've done a ton of publishing with literary journals and magazines, mm -hmm. yeah. but um, since this is my first book, it's hard to kind of compare it against another, another experience. Um, and so, you know, it's off, it's been very different than publishing in literary journals, mm -hmm. but I guess I can't really comment how different it would be like versus a different press, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I would say the majority of the, you're my 10th interview and the majority of them, I would probably say at least seven out of the 10 are all self-published. Okay. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about the kind of the, the slings and arrows of self-publishing, you know, the fact that yeah. it's all you, it's everything yes. is on you from the printing to the mailing, you know, I've right. heard horror stories about Kickstarter fulfillment of literally having pallets of books delivered to your apartment. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and, and people having like, oh yeah, for my birthday, I had a book mailing party where all my friends came over and we just packed boxes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Things like that. And so, you know, hearing the other side of it where, you know, you have this kind of, you know, massive juggernaut of a firm behind you kind of pushing that along, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I think to a certain degree, that's the goal. I mean, I know I'm getting ready to enter a contest with my novel that, you know, the prize is literally, I just get put on a list for, for agents. Yeah, yeah, the, great. The the cover fly launch pad uh, contest. Okay, uh, yeah. And so that's kind of the thing is like, I want to avoid having to, you know, mail my book myself, <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. to a large degree. Well, and I will say that, I mean, that is definitely the biggest, or one of the biggest, um, you know, pluses to being with a large publisher is that, yeah, you don't have to worry about distribution. They, they do have that down to a science. They're, you know, they really have those connections with bookstores. And so, you know, getting your book into bookstores around the country and distribution um, that, you know, and that is, I do feel very grateful that I have that um, all taken care of. And it's not something I have to think about. So, I mean, you're right. right. There's, there's definitely that benefit 
for yeah. sure. And I, and I know you've got a literary agent and looking at your website now, I am kicking myself. I do apologize. I did not go through your publicist for the podcast. Oh, that's fine. No, don't worry. Don't worry. I take care of, yeah, no, don't worry. I told myself (laughs) I was going to do it the right way. I'm trying to to work up my, my courage to get to bigger name authors. I'm, you know, you're, you're on my, you're on my path of going up the chain. So, (laughs) so uh, I know we're coming up at the end of your time here, but I just, um, just for other authors out there who are kind of trying to make it up the the traditional channels and up that ladder. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you got in touch and how you got connected with uh, Victoria Sanders and your your literary agent and how you got into that aspect of being an author. Right. So I did it the old-fashioned way where I, I wrote a query letter um, mm-hmm. so, you know, when you, when you finish a novel for, for you know, listeners out there, um, when you finish a novel and you, you feel like it's ready to sell, then you go ahead and write a query letter, which is essentially introducing yourself as a writer and introducing the book. And then you send that query letter to agents in New York. And, um, you know, it's, it's normally a pretty long, treacherous process. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was lucky in that Victoria took interest in my work quite quickly. And so, um, she, I, I'm trying to remember, um, I think she contacted me with interest in my work um, a couple weeks after I sent her the query letter. And so, um, you know, then at that point, I had some other agents who also were interested in representing me. And so um, I went ahead and I had interviews with different agents and um, chose uh, to work with Victoria. So that's, you know, it's kind of, um, I guess, yeah, the the typical or maybe old-fashioned way is, you know, to just send out query letters. I do know that there are other ways of um, getting agents now. There are things like pitch wars, I think, and there are different contests, um, but I just went ahead and tried to get my novel in the best shape I could, and then I sent out query letters. That's excellent. Yeah, I know, yeah. you know, we both had the same education, and I know they taught us, you know, the best thing you could hope for is rejection and ink. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But at least yeah. someone gave you feedback, which was awesome. Yeah. But yeah. So that's just, it's really encouraging that, uh, you know, just doing it the old fashioned way still works. That's and true. That well, yeah. And quality, I, quality plays out always. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Cause I know that there are a lot of rumors that go around that you have to know someone in New York city in order to get an agent. And mm-hmm. I do want to say that that's not true. Cause I don't know a single person and you know, <laughs> I mean, now I do since I now have an agent, but I mean, I didn't when I was querying. And so, um, you know, you can, um, get an agent without connections. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, I, we're coming up at the end here. So I just wanted to finish up with, uh, I am going to put a, a link to After the Flood on Amazon and the various selling markets. I'll put that in the show notes. So everyone Great. can go get your Thank book. You. Um, and do you have anything, what's coming up? What, are you working on anything new? Do you have anything you could talk about? Yeah, so I am close to finishing up my second novel. Um, It's a literary thriller that's set in the Nebraska Sandhills. And I can't say a ton more about it yet, um, because I'm waiting to to tell a lot about the story. But um, I am finishing that up. And so hopefully I'll have some news about that um, in the near future. Excellent. All right. I'm I'm noticing Nebraska is a recurring theme for you. It is, Uh, yeah. Is it kind of more that write what you know, or just... I think, you know, what I, I think what I like, I think both, you know, I, I like to take what I know and use it, use it as a starting point to jump into something that I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, so like after the flood, the main character is from Nebraska, but she doesn't stay there, you know, she goes on this sort of grand epic journey. And um, in the next novel, the whole thing does actually take place in Nebraska, but um, I am, I really love things with sort of a Great Plains or Midwestern Gothic flair. I, oh, I love wow. the like the Gothic, and so it has a little bit of that feeling. And I feel like the Sand Hills are so um, sort of eerie and compelling that it's just this um, landscape that is a great place to tell a sort of haunting story. Excellent. Well, I, I look forward to that a lot. Yeah, that'll be fun to to keep an eye on. So, yeah, yeah be yeah. sure to keep in touch. And uh, you know, like I said, I've you know, I've interviewed 10 people up to this point, but I'm starting to open it up. So if people have something coming out and they want to come back and talk more, I'm more than welcome to revisit interviews and keep, you know, follow, follow the trajectory of people's careers and just, 
you know, because the one thing about being a writer that I found is that it's an ever-changing process. You know, you're always adapting and learning and molding yourself into something different and new every time. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. Um, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for like taking the time to to chat with me today. Hey, yeah, no, I'm glad you I'm I'm glad that you were willing to say yes and I was flattered that you agreed to come on because like I said, I, I've, you're only my 10th interview. I've only done this, you know, <laughs> usually episode 17 because I've been splitting them in two just to buy myself time. So, yeah, well, no, but it was, this was great. I'm glad to meet another Neil Gaiman fan. Oh, yeah. So yeah. That's always fun. Uh, what, one thing I would say at the end here, and this is something I want to start trying to do more, is just uh, tell people where they can find you online okay. if there's, you know, your websites. Twitter, whatever, whatever you got as far as if people want to get in touch with you. Yeah, so the best place to to get in touch with me is through CassandraMontag.com, which is my website. There's mm -hmm. a contact box there. So, um, you know, I do always love getting kind emails. Um, and <laughs> and I also have a Facebook author page. Um, so you, if you just search for Cassandra Montag, my um, author page should come up. Um, I'm on Instagram, but not very frequently. So I would, I would say Facebook and yeah. my website. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll put links to all of those in the, in the page. I'll hopefully have this out probably by mm, sometime. Okay. All <laughs> I'm right. trying not to pin myself down too much because of uh, schedule changes, but I know I'm already a week overdue for, uh, for an episode. So I'll try to get this edited and get it out as soon as possible. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been, uh, yeah, this has been a fun interview and just a really great view into something that I don't get a whole lot, which is more traditional publishing and just right. uh, just the the classic publishing world, which I think is uh, something that people want to hear more about. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you. Thank you again. This thank was, you. This was a pleasure. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Best of luck all right. with all your future endeavors. Thank you. You too. All Thanks. Right. Talk Bye. to you later. Bye. I want to thank everyone for listening. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. If you'd like to support the show, visit our podcast page on Anchor FM at anchor.fm slash having written slash support where you can pledge as little as 99 cents per month to help facilitate our intriguing discussions with up-and-coming authors if you are an author or know an author who would like to be on having written email us at info at planetfictionproductions.com if you have any feedback or comments reach out to us on the social medias at on facebook at facebook.com slash planetficpro or on twitter at podcast fiction we look forward to hearing from you we hope you'll join us again for more discussion about Having Written. Having Written is a copyright of Planet Fiction Productions, copyright 2020.